Tonight we come to the final commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 17. And so with the Tenth Commandment, we come to the close of the core foundation of God's covenant with His people. The first four commands have to do mostly with our direct relationship with God in terms of proper worship of Him, honoring Him above all other gods, worshiping no other gods, making no idols or fashioning any image of anything in the worship of God, honoring and revering His name, respecting His name every time that we use it, every time that we come and worship, every time that we employ His name, it is to be set apart, sanctified, and holy. We are to honor Him with days of rest, days of worship, in the pattern of his own rest in the creation week. And then we see in the the final commands, commands that have to do more with our relationship with one another. And so we are to honor our authorities, our father, our mother, and by extension, by application, other authorities that God has placed in our lives. We are to honor the life that God has given to each human being, lives that are made in the image of God. And so we are to not take any innocent life. We're to honor our families and the families of others by not engaging in acts of adultery and severing families and destroying the foundation of a godly society. We're to honor and respect the personal property of others, not steal it from them, take advantage of them in any way. We are to be truthful in our words and specifically in concern for our neighbors that, that we see that justice is done in their lives and that the oppressed are not taken advantage of in justice, that whenever we have the opportunity to speak truth so that justice is served, we need to step forward and do that for the sake of truth and righteousness. And as we walk through these 10 commandments and now come to the 10th one, I think for many of us, we can at times fall into the trap of thinking, you know, I do pretty well with most of these. You know, we might think, well, certainly I've never murdered anyone. As far as I know, no one in this room has ever murdered anyone. I haven't done any background checks, but pretty sure. You know, most of us can probably say, I've never committed adultery. Never never done that, that act of adultery. Some of us could even say, I've never purposefully, at least knowingly, taken anybody's property that wasn't mine. You can say, I've never lied under oath. I've never given false testimony that would uh, put somebody in danger of facing a penalty for a crime they didn't commit. You can say, I've never done that. But then when you get to the 10th commandment, pretty much none of us escapes unscathed, do we? Because with the 10th commandment, we move from from commands that can be seen and judged by others, seen and judged by society, seen and judged by the courts, and we move into an arena in which only God sees. And that is the heart. And so I think one of the things that's helpful about this one finishing out the Ten Commandments is that we realize that while these commands were given by God, to arrange and order Israel as a society so that it could function as a society of people, as a nation that had laws and had justice and had order, that 
when we come to the 10th commandment, we realize that this is more than just about an organizing a society for law and order. This is about righteousness. This is about doing what is right before God, even if God is the only one who sees. And so it's not just about doing right in the eyes of our neighbors or doing right in the eyes of the court or the legal system. It's also about doing right in the eyes of the Lord who knows all and sees all, even into the interior depths of our heart. And so this command in Exodus 20, verse 17, says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we come to you tonight. We desire to know your word. We desire to come under its authority as your word, the word of God. And Lord, we certainly will be convicted and pricked tonight by your word as we recognize that there are many, many times that we sin, maybe not in external deed, but we sin in our hearts. Lord, forgive us of those thoughts, those those desires that we have that are not compatible with your will, that are unrighteous, unholy desires. Forgive us, Lord. May we find compassion and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as your people, redeemed by you, declared to be your children, declared to be the family of God, may we learn from your word how to order not only our exterior lives, but also to order our thoughts and our desires so that ultimately we might desire you and to worship you above all things as our creator and our God. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the interesting things about the Ten Commandments, and I've mentioned this kind of along the way as we've walked through them, is that for most of these commands, especially the latter half of the Ten Commands, there is almost without fail parallels in the ancient world. And so we can look to the laws of Egypt or the laws of Mesopotamia, the laws of Babylon, and we can see that they have laws very similar to some of the laws that we see in the Old Testament. Not murdering, not stealing, not committing adultery, not bearing false witness, committing perjury or injustice. And so many, many societies have laws like this, even even honoring father and mother and honoring authorities. We see that in other ancient societies. But one of the things that we don't see is we don't really see a strong parallel in other ancient legal contexts with this 10th command. This is, this is a kind of a uniquely biblical framework. And many commentators point out that, that this is a fitting end to the 10 commands because in a way it kind of circles around back to where it began. What is the first command? The first command is worship God, Right? Worship God. No other gods. Nothing else is to have our devotion, our worship. Nothing else in all of the world. In fact, in the second command, God tells us to not make idols or or anything that we would worship that would be fashioned after anything in his created world. So no images made after birds or animals or reptiles or stars or anything in the heavens. Nothing that would resemble anything in God's created world. Why? Because our focus is to be on him and him alone. So our focus and our worship is to be devoted to the creator, not that which is created. 
Then we come around to the last command, the 10th command, and what does it have to do with? It has to do with our desire for created things. It has to do with our desire for what our neighbor has, for things that we see and we crave them, we we long for them. And the Bible says, in closing the Ten Commands, that no, your desire needs to be for God. Your desire needs to be on Him. That's where your worship is. And and not desiring and wanting and greedy and, and, and desiring after the things that this world has to offer. That's why in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5 and verse 5, also in Colossians 3 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul calls greed idolatry. What is greed if not the desire for more, right? It's the desire for more. It's the desire to have either more money, more things, more possessions. Maybe for some it's more fame, more position. It's the desire for more, to have a life beyond what we already enjoy. And the Apostle Paul says that's idolatry. It's the worship of a false god. It's interesting, isn't it? Because So it's ending where it began. It began with proper worship, and in a sense, it's ending with make sure that we continue to worship properly by not desiring, coveting things that are not ours, that belong to our neighbor. And so this command is unique in many respects because, one, it involves something that is unique to Israel and its worship of God, but also it's unique because it involves the interior heart life and not that which is external and can be measured. One commentator, this is Victor Hamilton, he says, the last commandment differs dramatically from the previous nine. The first nine prohibit certain activities or actions. The last prohibits an inner thought or desire. Another commentator says, it is the function of the 10th commandment to make explicit the internalization of the whole law and reveal the sin of the heart. A person may not overtly commit the sins of murder, adultery, or stealing, but this does not exhaust his duty. He must endeavor to rid his mind of the evil desires of coveting. And it's interesting that what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 is he seems to take some of these commands in the Old Testament and merge them with the 10th command, to not covet. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But Jesus says, but I say to you, you shall not be angry with your brother in your heart. What's he doing there? He seems to be taking the the command against murder and melding it together with the command against coveting or the interior thought life. So not only is it wrong to commit the physical act of murder, but it's also wrong to contemplate it. It's also wrong to think about it, to wish for it. Even if you, knew, even if you know you're never going to act it out, it's wrong to have those thoughts and to wish ill will towards your neighbor. What does he do with adultery? Jesus says, you've heard it said long ago that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks after a woman and lusts after her, there's that, that word, desire, to covet, to want. Anyone who lusts after her in his heart is already guilty of adultery. So what Jesus does is he takes that command against adultery and the command against coveting, and he essentially merges them together and shows us that just following the external patterns of the law is not sufficient for our duty before God. It is to see these commands not only in their external form, but also in their interior form in our hearts, in our lives. And so what does it mean to covet? The word here 
you shall not covet. The word literally means to desire, to want, to want something strongly. Now, it's not in and of itself, this word by itself is not necessarily always a bad thing. Sometimes it can be used in scripture of a good desire. And so, for example, in Genesis 2.9, we see it, it used to describe something as desirable, as wanting something that God had made. And it, it is in the context of Genesis 2 verse 9, it is a healthy desire. But then in the very next chapter, in Genesis 3 and verse 6, we see Eve desiring something from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is off limits. And that is an evil desire. And so the desire can be, the desire in itself is neutral. It is what is desired and the reason why it is desired that can turn it into either something that is healthy or something that is sinful. And so this command specifically says, do not desire, do not want, do not crave that which is your neighbor's. And it specifically lists out your neighbor's house, which would include not just the exterior structure, right? He's talking about his whole household. And that's why he lists off several things that would be included in his whole household, including his wife, his servants, and all of his possessions. And now we read this command and we think, I really have never been guilty of coveting my neighbor's ox. I've never been guilty of coveting my neighbor's donkey or even his servants. Well, obviously, we need to kind of take this command from its original setting, and we need to apply it to our setting, right? And so while we may not be guilty of desiring our neighbor's ox, we might be guilty of desiring our neighbor's car. We might be guilty of desiring our neighbor's house. And yes, we may be guilty of desiring our neighbor's wife, which is lust, which is wrong. We may be guilty of desiring our neighbor's life in the sense of, look at, look at what he does. Look at all these opportunities. Look at the career he has. Look at the family he has. We might, we might long to, to exchange our lot in life with the lot in life of someone else and desire that and covet that. And that's a wrong desire. And so essentially it is to wish for, it is to crave for, it is to long after. And the idea here of neighbor can really refer to anyone, can't it? And it's not just neighbor in a strictly literal sense of just the person who lives next to you or lives in your neighborhood. The idea of neighbor in the Old Testament can really refer to anyone. It can refer to any Israelite. And even sometimes this word is used of those who are even strangers, aliens within Israel. Remember how Jesus applies it in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who is my neighbor? Well, basically anyone that you come in contact with can be your neighbor. And so don't desire anything that belongs to other people. Don't wish to have what they have. Don't long for it in such a way that it causes you to sin. Warren Wearsby says this in his commentary. He says, this command deals with what's in the heart. Covetous people will break all of God's commandments in order to satisfy their desires because at the heart of sin is the sin in the heart. 
And what he's saying there is essentially that all sin begins in the heart, doesn't it? All sin begins in the thought life. And so what what does Scripture say elsewhere about coveting? Well, let's look at a few stories where we see coveting going on. We see coveting going on in Genesis 3, don't we, with Eve. She sees the fruit. It looks good. She desires it. She takes it. She eats of it, and she disobeys God's word. In Genesis chapter 12, we see this same word for desiring or coveting. We see it used of Pharaoh, not the Pharaoh of Moses' day, but the Pharaoh of Abraham's day. And when he saw Sarah, Abraham's wife, and he desired her, and he brought her into his harem. In Numbers chapter 11, we see the word used for craving food, desiring food. In Joshua 7 verse 21, very famous story. Joshua 7, it's the sin of Achan. And you remember what Achan did? God had said, everything is off limits, right? You may not take anything from this conquest. It all belongs to the Lord. And yet Achan, he saw something, didn't he? He saw this Babylonian garment. He saw this this piece of silver. He saw this and he desired it. And he took it and he brought evil not only on himself and on his household, but he brought evil into the whole camp of the Lord for which they suffered. We see this, not necessarily the word itself, but we see the concept certainly in 2 Samuel with David, don't we? While everybody else is out fighting battles, David goes up and he looks out and he sees someone else's wife and he desires her, Bathsheba. And he brings her to him and he ends up having to commit murder to cover up that crime. And at least he thinks it's covered up for a while. So David commits the sin of coveting. And oftentimes it is this way in scripture and in life that coveting precedes the action, doesn't it? So Achan saw the thing, he desired it, then he took it. David saw Bathsheba, he desired her, then he took her to be his own. So coveting leads to the next sinful action. But here's the thing that the Word of God is teaching us here, is not only is coveting a danger because of what it leads to, but coveting is in and of itself sin. Even if the coveting doesn't lead to the external action, the interior desire, the, the illegitimate interior desire is wrong, is sinful. We see Ahab in 1 Kings 21. We read this passage last week. 1 Kings 21, Ahab desired Naboth's vineyard. He wanted it. And so Jezebel commits, she breaks the ninth command as well as the command against murder. She, she breaks several commands so as to get that vineyard for Ahab. But it all started with a desire, didn't it? Started with a desire with a, for a quest for something that was not his. In Psalms, we see desiring being used in a positive sense. So in Psalm 19, verse 11, it says that God's word is more desirable than silver or gold. So it's right to desire God's word, but it's wrong to desire silver or gold above God or his word. 
we see in the wisdom literature, such, such as Proverbs, that it is wrong to lust after the beauty of someone else's wife. Proverbs 6, verse 25. Proverbs 21 describes the lazy person, the sluggard, and it says that the sluggard desires things that he needs for his life, but he does not get them because he does not work. And so the sluggard is characterized by desire, but the righteous is characterized by giving away, being generous. In the prophets, such as Ezekiel, Micah, Isaiah, we see that one of the sins that the prophets repeatedly rebuked Israel for in their wandering away from God was not only idolatry, but it was covetousness. It was greed. In Micah chapter 2, we see that coveting led to people seizing one another's property. And Micah says, this is why the judgment of the Lord is going to fall on you. What about in the New Testament? We've already looked at a couple of them in Matthew, where Jesus says, not only is it wrong to commit adultery, it's also wrong to desire, to lust after someone else's wife. One of the most famous stories about coveting in all of Scripture comes from Matthew 19. And he was one of those men who could probably say, and he did say, I've kept all of God's commands. Remember that story? This rich young man came to Jesus and was asking him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know what the word of God says, you know the commandments, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And what does the young man say? I've kept all of those from my youth. And then what does Jesus say? Okay, now go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll find eternal life. What happened to the young man? He walked away, didn't he? What was, what was the point of Jesus there? Was he saying that the way to eternal life is to give away all your possessions and, and sell everything and give it to the poor? No, the point that Jesus was making there is this man wasn't as righteous as he thought he was. He thought that he had kept all the commands, but when it really came down to it, he was very, very guilty of breaking the 10th commandment, of coveting and of being greedy and wanting and desiring his possessions and unwilling to let them go for the benefit of other people. He showed that Jesus put him on the spot and it showed that he really wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping his things. In Romans 13, Paul lists coveting in a list with other commands. Interestingly, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul uses coveting as the preeminent command that showed him just how sinful he was. In Romans 7, 7, he says, The law says, Thou shalt not covet, and yet I see in me all of this kind of coveting and desiring. So for Paul in Romans 7, coveting revealed just how sinful he was and how much he really broke God's law. So how should we apply this command to our lives today? Let me, let me go at it just from, I think, maybe three ways. One is, first of all, this, that we should desire God above all else. That if we can understand the true heart of worship and of the first commandment, then it will help us to obey the tenth. And that is that God is, should be the focus of our lives. That everything that we do is for Him. God is the highest good. We, just, we should desire Him and His Word more than anything else that this world can offer. 
we also see in scripture that there are other things in God's world that he has made that are fitting to be desired. So it's not a sin to crave food when you're hungry. It's not a sin to desire to marry a husband or a wife when you're a young person. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's fine to desire to get married. It's fine in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 to desire a good work or a noble office, such as serving as a pastor or a leader in the church. In Genesis 2.9, we see that it is not a sin to desire the good gifts that God gives. But here's the thing. It is very, very easy to go from a healthy, natural desire for the good things that God has made. It's easy to let that slip into a greed, a covetousness in which we desire the things that God has made more than we desire the creator who gave them. And that's where desire becomes sinful. It's natural to desire the good things that God has made and even the things that we need to sustain our lives in this world. So we need food, we need shelter, we need sleep, we need clothing. So it's not, it's not wrong to desire to have those basic necessities of life, to have the things that we need, and enjoy even the good things that God has made. But we must be very careful about moving from there into desiring those things in such a way that they trump our desire for God. And they're more important than our worship of Him. So we must never allow our desire for the created to usurp our, des- our, des- our worship of the creator himself. But also there are some things that are just out of bounds, aren't they? Some things that are completely out of bounds. It's wrong to desire what someone else has. And that's what this command is about, isn't it? Desiring what someone else has. Desiring something that violates God's command When our desire for something or someone begins to dominate us and it becomes a virtual idol, when our whole happiness or mood is attached to the possession or non-possession of this thing, then we've moved into wrong desire, idolatrous desire, covetous desire. And so, first thing I mentioned was God should be our highest desire. God should be our highest longing our highest want to worship and love him. And I think a second principle that will help us apply this command to our lives is this, is to be, to learn through the, through God's grace and through the situations that he puts us in to learn contentment, contentment. The apostle Paul says in Philippians, I have learned in whatever condition, whatever state I am, therein to be content. It says, I've learned how to be hungry. I've learned how to be full. I've learned how to be poor. I've learned how to be rich. In other words, I've learned how to live and be content in all of these different stages and situations of life that God has put me in. And here's the thing, that doesn't come immediately. It doesn't come automatically. Paul says, I had to learn that. It was something that God was teaching him along the way. His spirit was teaching him as well as the different experiences that God put Paul in was helping him to learn that lesson. And so contentment. Paul says elsewhere in his epistles that godliness with contentment is great gain. 
the greatest antidote to, to breaking the 10th commandment is contentment. And then thirdly, I think even and then closely aligned with contentment is the idea of thankfulness. Thankfulness. So God should be our highest goal. We should learn through what God is doing in our lives and what he is teaching us. We should learn to be content. Not just with our things, with our stuff, but also with the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, the situations in life that God has blessed us with. And then thirdly, we need to develop the heart of thankfulness because thankfulness moves beyond just contentment and it moves to a spirit of love and of joy, of gratitude for what God has given. And so contentment is being satisfied with what we have. Thankfulness is being grateful for what we have. And when we develop that spirit of contentment, that spirit of gratitude, those serve as great countermeasures to sinful desires that can arise in our hearts. I'll finish with this quote from one of the commentaries that I read. This is uh, Roy Gain in his commentary on this command. He says, This law, the Tenth Commandment, the ones that deal with the interior life of the heart, he says, they challenge God's people to nip temptations in the bud by choosing to reject sins while they are still only potentialities in the mind, without allowing them to bear evil fruit as actions or words that cause external damage. He says this is Jesus' point in his Sermon on the Mount regarding the sins of anger and lust in relation to murder and adultery. People are guilty of sins that they decide they would commit if they would have the opportunity. And so he says, one of the things that we need to develop is a quick reaction in nipping these thoughts quickly before they move into more elaborate thoughts and, long, and stronger desires and then into plans and formulations of how to actually carry it out. So when that thought first comes into our minds, we need to recognize it and see it for what it is as an evil desire and ask God, pray right then, ask God to help you stop that evil desire and to focus your attention on him and on what he has already blessed you with. And so may we be people that are known for being content and thankful, not people that are greedy and longing for other things that people have or all the wealth that this world has to offer. Because going after the things of this world is really just false worship. It's idolatry. It's putting our hope, our meaning, our life, our happiness in the things that this world can provide. One of the mistakes of, of coveting is we think that other people's stuff and the stuff that this world has to offer will bring us happiness. And that's completely wrong, isn't it? Happiness doesn't come from the outside in. True joy comes from the inside out. It comes from being content in the situations where God has placed you. It comes from being thankful to the Lord for his grace and his abundance that he's already given you. It comes from the work of the Spirit that indwells in you. Thankfulness comes, thankfulness and happiness comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so may we be content. May we be thankful. Let's bow in prayer together.
Our Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. That even though you see the interior depths of our hearts, and you know every single one of our thoughts, you know the times when we long for something that we don't have, you know the times that we desire what belongs to our friend, to our neighbor. You know the times when we are not content, when we're ungrateful, and yet, Lord, you still love us. Even while we were still sinners, you demonstrated your love toward us by sending Christ to be our Redeemer. We are so thankful, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy, that even though many, many times we are greedy, unthankful people, that, Lord, you've taken pity upon us and showed us your grace. Lord, having now been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, having now been adopted into your family by your love and grace, Lord, help us now to live as your people. Help us to live not greedy and desiring everything that this world has like the rest of the unbelieving world does, but Lord, may we be content in what you've given to us. May we live in joy, in thankfulness, in happiness, because we can be called children of God. And because we have a future eternal inheritance that this world can never take away. Lord, bless us as your people. Help us to walk in the truth and walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen.